Hey, I'm Austin, and welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. This week, we continue our six-week teaching series called Jesus, My Reward, My Desire, My King. We're going to be spending the next six weeks unpacking the Gospel of John together. Today, we continue in John chapter 2 as guest speaker Bethany Pipping unpacks the significance of Jesus and relationships. Morning Valley Point. Thank you so much for having me here. It is um, such a privilege. Um, Eric and Tanya, like Eric said, they're really great family friends. Tanya actually mentored me through high school. And um, when you grow up in a ministry home and have a dad as a pastor, it's uh, or a pastor as a dad, um, it's kind of hard for your dad to be your pastor because he's just your dad. And so for many years, Eric was my pastor and um, just. It was as much fun to be here to be with you guys as it was just to come and, and hang out and see um, Eric and Tanya again and their kids. And so thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, when Eric asked if I'd be willing to come and speak, and he said, well, we can do a couple different things. It's a holiday weekend. If you want to talk on something um, that God's been teaching you, that'd be great. Or we're doing this series. And he told me a little bit about it, and I, I was just so excited um, to, I've, I've listened to the messages and followed along online, and it's an awesome series, and I'm so excited to get to walk through the next uh, portion or the next episode of the life of Jesus found in John 2. And I, I want to jump in here, so if you have your Bibles and would turn with me to John 2, we're going to start right away in verse 1 and just walk through the first 11 verses of this chapter. Uh, John 2 uh, begins with this. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. And the wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. So standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washings, and each could hold about 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water, and when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servant followed these, his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, He called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So... This was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. This was the first miracle that we have recorded in scripture. And I was doing a little research. I was just curious, you know, how many miracles do we have recorded in scripture? How many miracles do we know about? And as I began to look at the list, we have, there are about 40 miracles of Jesus in scripture. And about at least 30, at least 30. There could be a few more there's some gray area, but at least 30 of those miracles are done for people who are dying, already dead, or wish they were dead. 
because they suffered from some malady like leprosy and had limbs falling off. So, or maybe they were just possessed by a legion of demons. I mean, those are like big miracles, right? They make sense to us. Like someone is hurting. A mother's son, only son, just died. Jesus brings him back to life. Those kinds of things fit. But for Jesus' first miracle to be livening up a wedding party by making more wine, like it just is kind of puzzling to me. Why would he do that? Why would he choose to use a miracle in that way? And I, I wonder sometimes if, um, if this story kind of feeds this pop culture theology that we have that Jesus is supposed to show up and save the day. And whether it's, you know, something small that went wrong or something big that went wrong, like Jesus shows up and he saves the day and he comes to my rescue. But the problem with that belief is that, first of all, it's bad theology. And we know that when we look at scripture, he doesn't always show up and save the day. Um, But two, I mean, just practically speaking, if you live in the world that I live in, it doesn't work like that. You know, I I feel like there are times where I pray and pray and pray and, and Jesus doesn't show up and save the day. And he doesn't answer my prayer the way that I want. And so what do you do then? And it's honestly very interesting as I was preparing for my talk, the last month has just been a really difficult ministry season. It's been a hard run. And um, as I, I was looking at this, maybe this is just, you know, in Chicago, we're, we're known for our sarcasm. I don't know if you've noticed with Eric, but um, it certainly runs strong in my family. We fit right in in Chicago. And oftentimes, hand in hand with sarcasm is this like cynicism. And as I've been wrestling with this passage, I can't help but think sometimes, like, gee, that's nice, Jesus. You showed up and saved the day for them, but what about me? You know, what about this difficult season that I'm in, and where's my miracle? And um, I was just reminded as Austin prayed for Oklahoma, and this week especially, when there is heartache, when there are really big things going on, what does a passage like this mean for us? And, and when life is hard, when, when marriages are hard, or kids are sick, or I've lost my job, and I'm just tired, and I need a miracle, what does this do for me? And those are all really uh, hard questions They're real questions when we're honest with ourselves in those quiet moments. We may never speak them out loud, but if you're anything like me, you think them inside. And I honestly think they're fair questions, but they're questions that don't have answers apart from Scripture. And believe it or not, contrary to the first glance at this passage, um, God has been answering some of those questions that I've been asking in my spirit from this very passage of scripture. And so I want to take another look and kind of walk verse by verse through this and see what God has to say about those hard questions. Because what we see in this passage is the beginning of a pattern that Jesus continues throughout his ministry. And the pattern is this, that Jesus was consumed with relationship 
It was his driving force. It was what, what got him up in the morning and, and drove him to the cross. It was the purpose of his ministry. Jesus was consumed with relationship, and that matters. It mattered to then, and it matters to us, and it, it's a game changer. So let's take a look again at John 2, verses 1 and 2, and we'll, we'll just walk through this together. Well, it says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Well, here we see Jesus and his disciples and his mom are at this wedding, and it's in Cana, which is in the province of Galilee. That's the same province Jesus is from. In fact, it's about five miles from the town Jesus grew up in, Nazareth. So this is kind of like his hometown gang here. He's hanging with them, and we, we know because he was invited, he was relationally invested with this family, and uh, his mom is there. It's very possible that they were family friends. Later on in the story, we see that Mary is taking some responsibility for refreshments and the drinks, and she's involved enough to know when things don't go according to plan. So she, she's invested as well. Like I said, very possible that these are family friends who are getting married. Beyond that, we don't know much about who this bride and groom are. We don't know much about their family, but we know that Jesus was connected with them relationally, or he just wouldn't have been there. And uh, I, we also know that it's a small town, and that should tell you a lot. If you're from a small town or have uh, experience with a small town, you know what I'm talking about. Um, my dad is actually from a very, very small town. It's called Chattahoochee. It's in Florida. It's about uh, three miles, four miles south of the Florida-Georgia line. And they have a grand total of like 3,000 people that live in town. And I think they have like a 7-Eleven and a subway, and that's it. Um, I got to go back and visit my grandparents who have lived there for almost 50 years a couple weeks ago. And... I am reminded every time I go back to Chattahoochee, um, the, the memory of a small town, like, goes forever. They never forget anything. And I actually lived in that town, and um, that's where I was born, and just lived there for the first few years of my life. But I lived there long enough to develop a reputation, apparently. Um, I was really bad as a two-year-old at sitting still and being quiet in church. I guess not much has changed. But uh, my parents would sit in the front row, and they would do that and sit on the far side of the church so they had easy access to the exit. And they would carry a wooden spoon in my diaper bag to remind me that I needed to sit still and be quiet in church. And, um, you know, it was just kind of the Sunday drill. You know, we would sit in there, and I'd be loud, and they'd take me out and bring me back in, and I'd be better for a little bit, and they'd do it over again. Well, one day, as my dad went to go through that routine, uh, I just screamed at the top of my lungs, Daddy, don't spank me. And the whole church went up for grabs, much to my parents' embarrassment, of course, and everybody's laughing, interrupted the service. Again, small town, small church, there's like 25 adults there. And, um, 
And you know what? There is a sweet church lady named Miss Linda who was my nursery Sunday school teacher, and she still remembers that story. And every time I go back to Chattahoochee, she reminds me of that story. And I, I mean, it's been like 25 years, and I am still being reminded of that day. And I just, when I think of that, I have learned the lesson that no one ever forgets anything in a small town, ever, especially if it's embarrassing. And that principle is true today, and it was true back then too, and that's what makes the next verse here and what happens, uh, that's what makes it such a big deal. If you look at um, verse 3, it says, the wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Now, the groom back then was responsible for putting on the wedding. And this was a big deal. It wasn't like, oh shoot, we ran out of soda. We're going to have to run to Walmart and pick up some Diet Coke for the rest of the party. I mean, this was a big deal because um, the ball had been dropped and, and this was socially The groom had a responsibility to put on an adequate feast for everybody who would come to the wedding. In fact, weddings back then were not just a one-time thing that were four or five hours long. Weddings would last several days, anywhere from a week to two weeks, kind of depending on the wealth of the family throwing the party. And like I said, a groom had a responsibility to provide food for the full feast and, and drinks and all of that as well. So the ball had been dropped here. I'm sure David Tutera would have been horrified. And, um, and Mary notices, like, what are we going to do? Because running out of wine and failing to provide for your guests would have been social suicide. In, in a small-town environment where there's a long memory, where it's a society based on honor and respect, and to do something so embarrassing so publicly would have been a stigma that lasted with this young couple into their marriage and probably throughout the rest of their lives. It, it would have jeopardized their social standing in their community. And furthermore, maybe even more importantly, it would have jeopardized them financially. See, the groom had a legal responsibility to provide adequately, and if he didn't do that, then guests could withhold up to half of the gift that they were going to give the young couple. So this would have really crippled this couple. It would not have set them up well for their new life together. It was a big deal which is why Mary does what every good mom does, and she notices there's a problem, and she voluntells her son to do something, right? If you were um, in a family, like uh, Eric said, I grew up in a ministry family, and I got voluntold a lot. Like, hey, we don't have a four- and five-year-old Sunday school teacher. You're it. Go. And um, I don't know if you guys had parents like that, or maybe if you are a parent like that, but Um, Mary is doing a little bit of that here, like, oh no, we're in crisis, and I need your help. And so she tells Jesus what's going on, and what's surprising here is how he responds. You know, you'd think Jesus, he's like the perfect son, yes, mom, whatever you need. No, that's not how he responds. If you look at verse 4, it says, dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, that kind of sounds a little harsh, but um, it it isn't meant to be disrespectful. In fact, the phrase dear woman was not sarcastic like we would say it in Chicago. He truly means it. Um, And 
And the second statement there, my time has not yet come, kind of gives us some context for what he's trying to communicate here. That phrase simply means your concern and my concern are not the same thing. A couple weeks back, Eric walked you guys through a portion of chapter 1, and he talked about how Jesus was consumed with a mission, a mission to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That mission was so important to him, he was not willing to jeopardize it for anything, even his mom's emergency agenda. And so Jesus just tells them that my time has not yet come. And what he's referring to there is that time where he wore, he publicly wore the mantle of Messiah, that title. And, and that, it started when he does his first miracle and goes all the way through to the cross. That three-year period is what he's talking about here. And uh, when his hour, which is how he refers to that time in other places in Scripture, when his hour or his time finally came on the cross, he met the needs of the entire human race by dying on the cross. And Mary saw this immediate need, and she was asking him to meet this immediate need right now And he saw a much greater need, an eternal need, not just for that couple, not just for the people at that party or for his family, but but for everyone who would ever live. And he wasn't willing to sacrifice that to act in the moment and answer an emergency request. And he did that because he was consumed with relationship. It may not seem like it, But really, Jesus understood that the only way we would ever have a relationship with him was if he accomplished his mission. His mission was all about relationship. If he didn't step into that role to be the Lamb of God, if he didn't take away our sins, we would never have an opportunity to have a relationship with him and his Father. And so because of relationship, he had to say no in the moment. And as we watch this interaction between Jesus and his mom, I can't help but be reminded that a lot of times I'm like Mary. I I think we can all find ourselves in that position where all we can see is our immediate need. All we can see is our emergency. And we, we want and need Jesus to answer this request in this particular way at this exact moment. And what we learn in this interaction is that God's sovereign plan and my personal need are not always one and the same. God's sovereign plan and my personal need are not always one and the same. Because God's sovereign plan is always bigger than what I can see. God can see the span of our lives. And sometimes what we're asking for right now might jeopardize something that he has planned for us later. And so he can see our entire lifespan, but not only that, he can see the span of history. He sees the big picture of my life and the big picture of the world. And, and he can always see more than I can. And so God's sovereign plan and mine are always the same because God's sovereign plan is always bigger than what I can see. And it always involves more than just my personal need or agenda. This doesn't mean that he doesn't care. 
It doesn't mean that he doesn't understand the heartache that we're going through. It doesn't mean that he isn't walking with us. We never walk alone. We just sang that this morning. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care, but what it does mean is that he sees the big picture. He sees my need, and he can see beyond it. And he is working with a mission in mind. Well, in verse 4, Jesus reminds his mom who he is, he's Messiah, and that his time hasn't come yet. And I love how Mary responds. She responds well. She kind of, okay, you're not just my son, you're also Messiah, I got it. And she responds in verse 5 and says, but his mother's told the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, Jesus does, or she doesn't get frustrated. She doesn't run out to the quick mart and pick up, you know, 7-Eleven's finest box wine. You know, she doesn't call her other son Joe to come and do something. She just waits with faith-filled expectation. And she trusts that Jesus is going to do something. And if he doesn't, then there's no more wine and party's over and we go home. But, like, Jesus is the only option. There is no plan B. And I think we can take a cue from Mary here and how to respond in those crisis moments of our lives. Uh, when, when we're in need, when I'm in need, and I have exhausted all other wise options, Jesus becomes the only option. You know, when I'm in need and I've exhausted all other wise solutions, Jesus becomes my only option. There's no plan B. Now, this doesn't exempt us from taking wise steps. This doesn't exempt us from seeking counsel and doing the next right thing. But sometimes there are those moments where you take the next right step and the next right step, and then there's just, it's not clear what the next step is. And in those moments where we're not sure, we wait. And, and we, we wait in faith-filled expectation like Mary. She gets the servants ready. I don't know what he's going to do or, or if he's going to respond the way I want him to, but, but we're going to be ready. So just do whatever he says. When we're in need and we've exhausted all other wise solutions, Jesus becomes the only option. Mary practiced that principle and her faith was rewarded. If you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, you see that Jesus shows up. He saves the day. It says, you know, nearby were six stone water jars used for ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. He came to the rescue. He saved the day. He reminds his mom, like, I'm not on your plan. I've got a sovereign timetable that I'm following that God the Father set up for me. But it's, I'll I'll move. Like, he's able, again, he sees the big picture, and he's able to balance. He's able to kind of gently remind his mom, like, this isn't about you. It's not your timing. It's God's timing. And when she gets it, he moves forward with the miracle. And and he comes to the rescue. But again, the purpose of this story and of other stories found throughout the gospel is not to communicate that Jesus will always save the day. In fact, oftentimes if you look at even the whole book of John or at the gospels, there are so many stories where Jesus doesn't save the day, where he doesn't act, where he doesn't step in immediately and answer the request just as it was asked. 
If you look at Matthew 14, Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist, was killed. Now, Jesus knew that he had been captured. He knew that he was being held prisoner by Herod, and, and he doesn't do anything. He doesn't change Herod's heart. He doesn't send angels to bust him out of jail. He doesn't do anything. And in that particular situation, we don't get to hear God's thought process. He doesn't explain himself there. We just trust that, well, John went to heaven, and we know that that's better. He finally got out of those itchy camel skin clothes. And, and we just have to trust that in that situation, God knew what was right. We don't get an inside glimpse at what he was thinking. But in another story, in John 11... Jesus' friend Lazarus was sick. And this is another situation. Jesus doesn't jump in and save the day right away. People send a message to Jesus saying, your, your buddy's sick, you gotta come, you gotta, you gotta do something. And Jesus waits. He waits several days to the point where when he shows up, Lazarus has already died and been in the grave for a couple days. And his, his, Lazarus' sisters are heartbroken, and people are telling him, if you'd only been here, if you'd only answered our request, if you'd only met our need right when we asked, we wouldn't be in this situation. And, and Jesus here gives us a glimpse of what's going on in his head and why he did what he did. And in John 11, verses 40, 41, and 42, he explains himself a little bit. He says, didn't I tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. And right after he says that, he calls Lazarus out of the grave and raises him back to life. And it says that many of the people there believed in him. God got the glory and more people believed in Jesus as a result of him waiting and not meeting an immediate need. And when I'm in need and I've exhausted all other wise solutions, Jesus becomes my only option. And when we wait and when, when we wait for him to act on our behalf, we're rewarded. You know, if we jump back into the end of this story, the wedding at Cana, um, in verse 10, we see that um, Jesus jumps in and not only does he save the day, but it appears to everybody else at the party who is blissfully unaware of what's going on that they saved the best for last. Take a look at verses 9, 10, and 11. It says, When the master of ceremony tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, and then when everyone has a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. The miraculous sign at Cana was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here he is. Jesus saves the day. But not only that, it appears to everyone else like they saved the best for last. Guys, when I wait for God to act on my behalf, he gets the glory and I get his very best. I get his plan A because I didn't go out and try and find a plan B. 
I didn't distract myself with entertainment and other friendships or relationships. I didn't numb that pain and, and run to food or alcohol or more spending or busier schedules or more work. I, when we're willing to wait, when we're willing to sit in the hard place a little longer and wait for Jesus to act on our behalf with faithful expectation, we get his very best and he gets all the glory. It's from the wedding at Cana and the healing of Lazarus all the way to the cross, Jesus shows us that his heart is for us, that he is in it with us. And in the midst of broken families and sick kids and job loss and heartache, he, we can have hope because we know that he is with us. He is consumed with relationship. It's his driving force. He loves us. Other places in scripture, it talks about how he is the giver of all good gifts. But you know what? He gets to do that in his timing and in his way and not on our schedule. Because when we wait on God, when we trust that, that he's going to do something, he's going to act he gets all the glory, and we get his very best. Because I want to pray and close out. Um, but before I go, I just want to challenge you. This sounds really great, you know, in church. And yes, that sounds awesome. But when real life hits, and when it's really hard, I, I've gotten to live that out a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And it's hard, but it's so true. And this is something that when you really put names to it, when you really put specifics around it, it's one of those things that you can hold on to. You can trust and cling to it that, that I can have hope because I know who my God is and I know that he's going to come through for me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity um, to walk through this passage of scripture uh, with Valley Point today. And, and Father, more than that, I just thank you that you are a good God, that you are the giver of all good things and you know what we need. And God, whether you choose to show up and save the day for us right away or whether we have to sit in that hard place for a little while before you act, Father, we know that you will. We know that you will work all things out for our good. And on the other end, you will get all the glory and we will have your very best. Thank you so much. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. We'd also like to invite you to join us for any of our Sunday gatherings as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9, 15 and 11 a.m.